top executives and crazy entrepreneurs gather to talk about the future of electric vehicles. This is the Driving with Don podcast. Welcome to the Driving with Don podcast. I am your host, Michael Dunn. Now this week, we are going completely out of bounds. And forgive me all you automotive lovers out there, but we're not going to talk about cars. We're going to talk about something related to cars, at least indirectly, you know, the chips that go in to power the cars are manufactured on an island that happens to reside about 100 miles east of mainland China. Are you still with me? Yeah, we're going to talk about Taiwan and its precarious situation today in 2023. Now, how much do you actually know about Taiwan? Until recently, most people in the world, if they were being honest, would say practically nothing but no longer. Today, Taiwan finds itself in a highly shaky and vulnerable position. The People's Republic of China has clear intentions to integrate Taiwan. That's what they call it, integrate Taiwan, to take control of the island and its 22 million residents. Hey, not so fast, say the people of Taiwan, and they're not alone. The United States, and for that matter, most economies around the world are highly reliant on Taiwan for supply of advanced chips that power everything from your iPhones to your Teslas. So on the one hand, China cannot tolerate a future where Taiwan is separate from China. But on the other hand, America and its allies cannot accept a Chinese takeover. Yes, we have two powerful forces diametrically opposed. So how will this high stakes drama play out? Joining us today is Bethany Allen, author of a tremendous new book called Beijing Rules. Bethany, who lives and works in Taiwan, will give us her view on how China plans to take control of the island of Taiwan and how they might even get it done without firing a shot. Wait, how is that even possible? Well, let's find out in this part one of a two-part conversation with Bethany Allen, author, Beijing Rules, on the Driving With Don podcast. The Daily Drive podcast brings you all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. I'm Jamie Butters, executive editor of Automotive News. And I'm Kellen Walker. We give you all the top stories each weekday in interviews with experts like Mike Dunn explaining Jeep struggles in China. How bad did it get as recently as June? Sales of Jeeps in China. Can you guess the number, Jamie? Oh, gosh. Was it four digits? (laughs) It was one digit. (laughs) And the number was one. Listen and subscribe to Daily Drive at autonews.com or wherever you you get your podcast. Hey, Bethany, thank you for joining me today on the Driving With Done podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, Bethany, you're currently living in Taiwan, only about 100 miles east of mainland China, at a point in time in history when U.S.-China relations are absolutely in the gutter, haven't been this terrible in more than 50 years. So my question What's the vibe like right there where you live today? Well, you know, surprisingly, most, I would say most Taiwanese people um, are totally chill about it. And this is something that uh, really, really struck me when I first moved to Taiwan last summer. I came here about a week before Nancy Pelosi, uh, before her trip here. And, you know, there was so much tension and so much, you know, drama uh, between the U.S. and China because of her visit. She was the first House Speaker to to visit Taiwan in about 25 years. 
And from if you were to read the headlines only, you would think that Taiwanese people were hiding in their basements, you know, afraid of the bombs starting to right, fall. Um, right. In reality, uh, people were just going around, you know, living their normal lives and doing normal things. And, and in fact, I, I went to a small island that was the closest part of Taiwanese soil that was, that was closest to the Chinese military drills, these huge, massive military drills that China launched, uh, you know, after Pelosi's visit, biggest military drills in decades. And this island uh, called Xiaoliuocho was just about five miles away from the nearest military drill. So it's just right on the horizon. So I went there to ask people on the island if they were nervous. And you would think that if anybody in Taiwan was nervous about this, it would be them. They're and on they the were, front line. They're oh, the they front. were they were frolicking around on the beach, taking selfies. You know, <laughs> and it was, it's a tourist uh, destination. I asked more than 20 people if they were nervous about the Chinese military drills. And, and about a third of the people actually laughed in my face and said, of course not. So this is this is pretty much the vibe in Taiwan all the time, um, that most people, this is not the thing that's on the front of their mind all the time. And and again, when uh, President Tsai flew to California and met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, um, China again launched some smaller scale military drills. And for those, I flew across the Taiwan Strait to Jinmen, which is the, the Taiwanese island that is closest to the mainland. It's it's much closer to the mainland um, than it is to, to Taiwan. In fact, you can see the mainland from Jinmen. So I flew there uh, with a bunch of Taiwanese tourists and you know, I listened in on what they were saying. I talked to them and people were much more concerned about the rise in the price of eggs okay. than they were about these military drills. I, I say all that to say that the feeling here in Taiwan is different than what you would expect. Now, that isn't the case for people here whose job it is to worry about this. You know, mm. when you talk to people in the military, you know, people in the government, yes, you know, they understand that tensions are high, tensions are running very high uh, between the US and China, that China is becoming much more aggressive. Its timeline for when it hopes to take Taiwan seems to have gotten much more tangible and shorter. But things here feel normal. Bethany, let ask, me, yeah. allow me to jump in here because yeah. it's right to the heart of the matter. As a how do you make sense of all of that and then report back to people in the United States and paint a picture that's clear and simple when in, re in reality, things aren't so clear and simple on the ground? Yeah, well, you can do it through different snapshots of, of people's lives or different snapshots of different kinds of things that are happening on the ground. So I did that one story from that island. But I've also done several stories about these new civil defense initiatives inspired in large part by the civil defense mobilization in Ukraine. And mm -hmm. so you have these new organizations, some of them have a lot of funding to help train, you know, average Taiwanese people, volunteers, uh, things like how to do uh, open source intelligence analysis, how to fight online disinformation coming from China, um, even some actual military training. And uh, there's a, you know, a, a, a the tycoon here who's put it put in millions of dollars and he said that he wants to have a you know basically create a civilian militia of mm -hmm. people who have you know training to use guns you know for for self-defense in the in the case of a, an invasion and you know trainings of, of you know like how to and i've attended these or you know as, as a journalist on dispatches where they they train people how to pull people out of a collapsed building how to mm -hmm. you know, bind a wound and so you see this kind of change happening on the edges really of taiwanese society a small number of people becoming more interested in this here's a, another you know 
interesting anecdote. Um, when I first came here last year, my editors were concerned about my safety and they wanted me to put together, um, you know, a contingency plan in case there was a, an air raid from China and they wanted me to find the nearest bomb shelter. Mm -hmm. It was actually very difficult to find the nearest bomb shelter. I really wanted to try to find it. It was very hard. And I never really successfully found it, found any bomb shelters, uh, except for just like I could just go into the MRT station, you know, go into the into the subway. Last month or about two months ago for the first time, all these paper posters appeared around Taipei, literally just pieces of paper taped to the walls saying air raid shelter this way all over the city. I I, I say that to say that actually things here, I think they are insufficiently prepared. I think mm -hmm. in D.C., people sometimes view Taiwan as basically it's a pre-war zone. Everyone must be hypermobilized. That is not the case. People are not freaking out. But in Taiwan, I think some I think I think there's a degree of complacency because, yes, you know, the, the Chinese government has been threatening for more than 70 years to take Taiwan. And no, they haven't taken it yet. And that's what people say when I ask, why are you not worried? That's what they say. However, you know, Xi Jinping is a different is a different kind of leader. You know, the Chinese Communist Party now is not the Chinese Communist Party of 25 years ago. They're much stronger, much more aggressive, much more ambitious. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I see Taiwanese society and, and government slowly trying to prepare more, but really it's, I would say, preparations are quite insufficient. Bethany, as a person coming into Taiwan from the outside, you have the advantage of fresh eyes. So tell me, what's your view? How long before China makes a move on Taiwan? My opinion is that in the U.S., we spend way too much time talking about a military scenario. I think mm -hmm. we spend 80 to 90 percent of our time talking about a military invasion scenario when we should be spending 10 to 20 percent of our time talking about a military invasion scenario. I think it is far more likely that China will use um, a combination of different forms of non-military coercion um, to pressure Taiwan into giving up its sovereignty in some form. And why that's so problematic that we're not talking about that is that having a national debate about it, having our leaders speak about it publicly, together with leaders of other democratic countries, that's a form of deterrence. And so, you know, let me give an example. Yeah, let, let's talk. What, what would that look like, that coercion? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's say that there's some form of economic embargo. This is not an amphibious assault. You know, the, the Chinese troops are not running up the Taiwanese beaches. Rather, you have some kind of economic embargo. And that could be a combination of, you know, China coordinating with its own like-minded countries to just suddenly stop, you know, cut off certain key um, forms of trade that Taiwan is heavily dependent on, for example. Yeah. Energy. Taiwan is an island. It's heavily reliant on energy imports. It only has about 11 days worth of energy reserves. Uh, you know, uh, some kind of economic embargo or a, a naval blockade even mm. would bring the country to a halt in 11 days. Um, you know, a, a naval blockade is is, function, is is legally an act of war, but if done right, no one actually dies. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, you know, would the U.S. be willing to start a war by pushing back against the Chinese military directly in, in a case like that. And could we make that decision within 11 days? Um, I think that would be a, a tall order. Mm -hmm. So so this this kind of pressure and economic pressure, cutting off these key you know, imports that, that Taiwan relies upon. Deterrence for that behavior, one form of deterrence would be the Chinese, the, the U.S. government saying publicly, China, if you do this, we will do this. If you if you do an economic blockade, we will we will implement these kinds of sanctions. Along, yes, exactly. Even better, even better. 
is to have an actual agreement, a multilateral agreement, let's say with our five eyes partners that explicitly and publicly says, if the Chinese government, you know, uses a devastating economic coercion on, on Taiwan to force it to give up some elements of its sovereignty, here is what we will do. Uh, and we we really haven't done that. So, so I think you that mentioned we, five eyes just for everybody. That's yeah. Australia, Japan, New Zealand, not Japan. Ah. It's it's New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the U.S., and the U.K. Mm-hmm. It's English speaking. It's a it, five, these five English speaking countries. Uh, it, it refers to a, a set of intelligence sharing agreements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but they're also very you know very close relationship. Lots of trust, like minded partners who. It's easy. It's easier to get these five countries to do things in concert with one another mm-hmm. in a defense and security sphere. Uh, that's fa- that's a fantastic read on the situation. It makes a lot of sense that China would go in that kind of direction, sort of economic coercion. We also know with the South China Sea islands, they do so in a way that's gradual yeah. and hard to uh, hard to object to or hard to counter in the moment because there's nothing so overtly blatant that you say, oh, you crossed the line. Now we're going to have to uh, counterpunch you. So do you see the same type of strategy and tactic with Taiwan where they'll gradually harass or make difficult? Or do you think there'll be a point in time where they decide, no, we're making our move now. We're going to we're going to build a blockade or something like that. What's your view? Oh, absolutely. So this is known as the salami slicing strategy, mm-hmm. where each individual action doesn't seem worth it. It doesn't seem mm-hmm. worth the risk of making a big stand against it. Mm-hmm. And so, but over time, you you lose your entire, you know, you lose the salami trying to get what it wants. And that's what they used very effectively in the South China Sea. And that mm-hmm. is absolutely the strategy we see and that we have long seen um, with, you know, Ch- China's strategy towards Taiwan. And that strategy has been a gradual constriction of the space um, on the global stage for Taiwan to exercise the rights of a, an actual sovereign country, mm-hmm. and uh, in a in a you know an intangible um, sense, but also in a very physical sense, you know, just the literal space around Taiwan. So let me give an example of some of the most recent salami slicing type behavior that we're seeing just from this year. Uh, and and the last year. So last year, the Chinese the Chinese government announced it made a statement that it has sovereignty over the Taiwan Strait, hmm. this you know large body of water. That's a first. Now, that was the first time they've made that claim. Now, to be clear, under international law, there is no such thing as sovereignty over the open seas. It does not exist. Um, a country has its uh, territorial waters within 12 nautical miles of its coast. It has an exclusive economic zone that extends far beyond its coast that is not territorial waters. But beyond that, there is no international legal definition or um, existence of sovereignty over an open body of water, which is what the Taiwan Strait is um, and is what the South China Sea is. And so, you know, China's um, strategy here is to chip away at this international legal precedent for you know what it, like for that determines the you know the usage and the and the navigation of waters um, and also and to do it for different reasons um, but any in any case so they announced that they have sovereignty over the Taiwan Strait they haven't really done all that much so far to try to to push that line to make it to make it functionally so in a de facto way. Mm-hmm. But they've made a few efforts in that direction. So one of those is that earlier this year, 
when Tsai Ing-wen um, had a stopover in the U.S. and visited uh, with the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Um, the Chinese government said that they were going to be doing inspections of vessels traveling through the Taiwan Strait because, in their view, this is our sovereign waters, this is our sovereign rights. Now, Taiwan said, and this includes like, you know, this is shipping vessels, not military vessels. Mm-hmm. And Ta- the Taiwanese government said, you know, told its own ships, do not comply. If a Chinese ship approaches you and demands to board, then, you know, notify the, the Taiwan Coast Guard. Now, to my knowledge, to our knowledge, this did not happen. There was not actually an incident where a, a Chinese vessel mm. demanded to board and inspect a Taiwanese vessel. But this is an example of we, we can see the trajectory here. And also that for, for a long time, there has been a de facto kind of dividing line down the Taiwan Strait called the, the midline that the, you know, the, it's, it's kind of like when you have two siblings sharing a room, you know, and you draw a line down the middle and you say, this is your side and this is your side, you know, to keep people from fighting. It's kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, the Chinese military and the Taiwanese military you know, more or less respected that with, with exceptions on the Chinese side. Since um, Pelosi's visit last year, almost every day, there have been sorties from the People's Liberation Army, um, Navy and Air Force crossing uh, the, the, the midline. Um, and it's and since uh, Tsai's visit to the U.S. this year, it's been a larger number of vessels every day. So, er- you know, eroding or erasing that that de facto precedent there. Mm-hmm. So, we, we, and we see this in every aspect of how the Chinese government treats Taiwan's sovereignty. That sounds like a pretty bleak picture, just wearing us down, wearing yeah. Taiwan down, wearing us down without provoking, without crossing a red line per se. But it's clear where things are headed. So. You're the president of Taiwan. You get elected. What's your next move? Well, here's the difficulty is that it's really hard to be the president that that forces Taiwanese people to start feeling like they're in a crisis because Taiwanese people don't feel like they're in a crisis. People here mm. have great lives. It's, it's a great country. There's a high standard of living. Uh, there's a great national medical medical care system that is very popular. Um, you know, there's low cost education. It's it's a you know there's great infrastructure. It's a one it's of the great, best societies in the world, arguably. It's a it's great yes, very low violence. It's a mm-hmm. it's a great society, not a perfect mm-hmm. society, but a great society. People here really enjoy that. No president wants to be the president who says we're going to have to redirect some of our funding from education, from infrastructure, from all these you know domestic um, benefits to you know to our military preparations, to our defense preparations. You don't want to be the president who makes everybody everybody feel scared all the time. Mm-hmm. You know. And so domestic, the domestic politics of it makes it very difficult for that messaging to be perhaps maybe where it should be. Maybe. I mean, I, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe the other, another view of it is that allowing Taiwanese people to maintain a normal life for as long as possible uh, increases the resiliency of Taiwanese society mm-hmm. because it doesn't exhaust them. They're not living in fear. They're living with confidence. Right. They're enjoying their lives. And therefore, right. if there's any threat to that down the road, they'd say, wait yeah. a second. No, I don't want yeah. my life changed overnight. Yeah. And a really good metric of this, you know, you can talk to people on the street, whatever, but a really excellent metric for whether or not lots of Taiwanese people are afraid for the future of Taiwan are housing prices. Hmm. Housing prices in Taipei, where I live, the capital city, are very, very high. You know, this is one big complaint of people here that it's very hard for average people to buy homes in Taipei. Common problem in big cities, capital cities around the world. Uh, During the Taiwan Strait crisis in the 1990s, 
housing prices in Taiwan fell dramatically because people were like, oh my God, I don't want to buy a house in a future war zone. You know, mm. people, you know, there was this fear of, of, you know, putting, you know, planting or parking your capital in this country. Housing prices right now are still very, very high. There has not been any kind of dip in housing prices. So you can see what people are actually thinking, which is that, yeah, totally fine. You know, my 30-year mortgage is going to be completely fine. Or, mm. you know, me paying cash for this house and, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about not being able to sell it if I need the money. We're still confident in the future. That's what right. Do people, if anything, and we're going to, we want to segue very quickly to your forthcoming book, but one more question on Taiwan before we move on. You ask your average American about Taiwan, they go, oh my God, that's where they make all the chips. Uh, <laughs> yes. TSMC, without TSMC, everything grinds to a halt. Is, is the average person in Taiwan aware of the critical role that Taiwan plays with regards to supplying the world with advanced chips? Or is that sort of more um, acutely, a, a, a more acute issue for Americans? Oh, I think I think many people are aware of that. I mean, it's a huge, a hugely important part of the economy mm -hmm. here. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think I think people are aware um, of of that of that importance, and I think many people are also aware of you know the fact that the Chinese government would love to be able to control that chip making process mm -hmm. um, and have control over over you know the uh, what is it that um, the what do they call it the new gold or silicon is the new gold. Mm -hmm. No, no, silicon is the new oil. That's what they call it. Silicon is the new oil. New oil. Yeah. Chips are the new oil. Yeah, chips are the new oil. Last question on Taiwan. I said that that was the last one, but I have one more. Does the average person on the street there, people you know, do they feel as though America has Taiwan's back or? Certainly the U.S. is very popular here. And, you know, everybody knows um, that, you know, the U.S., um, you know, is really rooting for Taiwan and has a close relationship with Taiwan. Since I'm American, you know, when I meet people, they often ask me where I'm from, or they ask me if I'm from America. And so many people say to me, oh, I went to school in America. My son lives in America. My grandson lives in America. My brother lives in America. You know, my mother, whatever. Many, many people either have spent time there or have relatives there. It's really quite dramatic. There's, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of people to people ties between the two countries. But I think some people, especially people, you know, who read more, maybe their their jobs are more international. I think there is a sense, there's a doubt that the U.S. would actually come to Taiwan's aid, that that the U.S. is really doing enough uh, to, to help Taiwan. Let me give you an example of this. I was um, at the doctor uh, a couple months ago, just for, you know, routine stuff. And the nurse um, who was checking me in, you know, oh, where are you from? I'm America, I'm a journalist. And she was very, very interested in geopolitics. So she kept asking me lots and lots of questions about the US-China relationship, China-Taiwan stuff. And then at the end of my appointment, I was getting ready to leave. And she asked to add me on Line, which is the messaging app, like WhatsApp. It's very, very popular here. So she asked to get my number online. And she said, okay, when you get the special, like early warning that the US government is going to give all the US citizens in Taiwan the attack is coming. Can you just like, let me know? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was like, okay, first of all, that's not how it works. We're not, I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not on some special list where they're going to give me a special warning. And she and, said, but, of course, you're going to deny it. <laughs> and, but it also shows to you that she, you know, believed that, you know, that the U.S. really didn't, wouldn't have her back, that, that, mm -hmm. you know, that the U.S. government really was just going to flee, was just going to get its own people out and leave. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that, you know, some of the, the things that, 
in recent years, you know, that people have seen from the U.S., you know, pulling out of Afghanistan, for example, um, has not been exactly confidence-inducing here. Mm-hmm. Bethany, let's now pivot to your book, Beijing Rules, which will be out in just a few weeks, August 1st, in fact, in which you make some really compelling arguments about how China has found a way to leverage its economic might, its market, its home market, in ways to coerce or otherwise persuade people to change their behavior. Tell us a little bit about the central message of your new book. The U.S., you you read the U.K. edition's um, (laughs) subtitle. The U.S. edition is Beijing Rules, How China Weaponized Its Economy to Confront the World. Mm. And, you know, what I do is I I show how right now, and, and certainly for the, you know, foreseeable future for the next several decades, the Chinese government's primary form of power production on the international stage isn't military or diplomatic, although they're trying to catch up on that. It is rather economic. Uh, And the term for that is economic statecraft, which means the use of economic power to accomplish political or geopolitical outcomes. And, you know, I refer to China's particular strategy as authoritarian economic statecraft, because the goals and purposes of the way that China uses its economy in this way is to erode liberal democratic norms around the world to erode the the rules-based order and to project its own restrictions, to project its own ability to oppress and to to force others to follow its own narrow geopolitical interest. And let me contrast this pretty clearly with, you know, a U.S. and a a Western, um, more traditional economic statecraft, which centers around sanctions, you know, de jour sanctions using the U.S. financial system and the global financial system. So the U.S. has dominance of the international financial system. The U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency. And that gives the the U.S. the ability to use the financial system, to deny access to the financial system to people it deems to be bad actors or entities it deems to be bad actors, and in this way, have an extraterritorial reach for its own laws. Mm-hmm. But the U.S. most typically and almost always uses this kind of power to achieve multilateral goals, such as nuclear nonproliferation, pushing back against illicit arms financing, pushing back against terrorist financing, trying to preserve the integrity of the international system um, uh, from money laundering and corruption, and increasingly um, to punish gross violators of human rights. The U.S. has rarely used um, sanctions in this way to accomplish purely narrow geopolitical goals. And let me give an example that kind of an exception that proves the rule. So under the Trump administration, uh, the Trump administration sanctioned two ICC investigators, international criminal, criminal court investigators, who were investigating possible U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan. Now, the use of the sanctions in that way is an illiberal use of sanctions that goes against um, you know, international law and norms and is purely in the U.S.'s own interest. Now, the Biden administration, when they came in, revoked those sanctions, saying that that was not an appropriate use of sanctions. But this is very rare. So I want to be super clear in saying this is how the U.S. does it. 
The Chinese government, there's, there's a couple of main differences. First of all, it's just functional. The Chinese government does not have access, does not have, does not have, sorry, does not have control over the international financial system in the way that the U.S. does. The RMB is not the world reserve currency. And the Chinese government doesn't really necessarily want the RMB to be the world reserve currency because then they would lose a degree of control over it and they'd like to keep that control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what they do have is their huge economy. And what, and I have to give credit to China's leaders for being super innovative. They have very carefully crafted a whole series of and, uh, and layers of different kinds of domestic controls over the gateways to China's economy um, that are very, you know, that it can use in a very targeted way to punish people for not stepping in line with the party's bottom lines. Mm -hmm. um, so they have a different mechanism by which they exert this kind of economic statecraft. But, but second, and I would say much more importantly, is that the Chinese government does not exercise the kind of political restraint that the U.S. government does when it comes to economic statecraft. In fact, the Chinese government does the opposite. Its use of economic coercion or uh, broader forms of economic statecraft are entirely and only to pursue China's own narrow geopolitical interests and have nothing to do with creating, um, you know, a, a multilateral, a, a multi, a multilaterally agreed upon better world. So the Chinese government only uses it to punish people for doing things like criticizing human rights in, in Xinjiang or Tibet. Um, for you know having a relationship, even unofficial relationship with Taiwan, um, for criticizing Xi Jinping, things like this, things that that the Chinese Communist Party has determined it wants, but that don't make the world a better place. I'm thinking of uh, just Hyundai. Bring it back to the auto industry. Hyundai Kia, biggest market in the world was China five years ago, and then Ch Korea signed an anti-missile defense shield agreement with the United States 2017. Since then, Hyundai Kia sales in China have declined by more than 50 percent. Mm. Now, there isn't a direct like, do not buy or you cannot sell here, but the, the word went out that the Koreans are less welcome here, and we've seen the consequences of that. So that's just one example in the auto mm -hmm. industry. I think there's countless other ones, yeah. especially for companies that somehow put, for example, Taiwan as a nation on the website even. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And this is a story that um, actually I broke along with a colleague back in, I think, 2017 or tw early 2018, I can't remember, about the Chinese government um, giving an ultimatum to U.S. airlines saying that they have to fix all the language on their website and in their, you know, material, their physical materials that violated the, the one China principle, you know, that made Taiwan appear as a country. And you know, U.S. airlines and other airlines hopped too because otherwise they would, you know, face being shut out of the Chinese market, and that would be devastating for so many for so many companies. This is something that the Chinese government has, you know, really adopted to, you know, w w with a high degree of success. Um, especially, what does that it, look like on their websites now? For example, previously they may have had Taiwan as a separate color on a map or a destination, but now it's all integrated with one China or how, what it, it depends. It depends on the airline. So I think for U.S.-based um, airlines, they don't say Taiwan, comma China, or like mm. Taipei City, you know, Taipei City, comma China. But I mm. think some non-U.S. airlines do now. Mm. I think U.S. airlines will just have the city, just be like, oh, you know, oh. <laughs> Washington yeah. D.C. or New York to uh. Taipei. Where is uh. Taipei? I don't know. It's some city floating randomly in the world. Taipei. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Workarounds because the capitalists. Yes. Corporate corporations want to keep making money.
Hey, did you like that? Yes, that's my producer, mischievous producer, Chris Donovan at work, leaving this episode with a rhetorical question. Are we in the West too naive? Well, we'll get the answer to that in part two of this conversation with Bethany Allen. For now, I have a question for all of you. What do you think? Taiwan, is it likely to keep its sovereignty or is it only a matter of time before China simply overwhelms this island of 22 million people, whether through a military assault, constant little harassments, or a economic squeeze like some kind of embargo? I can say this, for Chinese people, and I lived there, on the ground, in the People's Republic, for almost 20 years. It is only a question of time, Taiwan is. Taiwan will return to the motherland, they say. Taiwan Taiwan belongs to us. But Taiwanese people and much of the Western world see things differently. They like their independence. They like their democracy. They like knowing that there's some rule of law. How will this play out? I agree with Bethany. I doubt that China will launch a massive military attack. It's just not China's style. Rather, the Communist Party, the People's Republic, will probably stay in their comfort zone, which is wearing their adversaries down through a series of small actions over time, again and again and again, until their opponents throw their arms up in the air and say, okay, we capitulate, fine, we're exhausted, you can have it. Hey, come to think of that, it's not unlike the approach that they use when negotiating in business. They just repeat the same words over and over again until you get so tired of them that you say, all right, let's sign the contract, you win. For example, they might say, uh, No, this is not going to work. It's too expensive. And they say that 20, 30, 40 times over until you say, All right, throw the towel in. It's midnight. Let's sign the contract. The Chinese are very good at that. It's very effective. And maybe they wear Taiwan down in the same manner. We're bound to find out and we're probably going to find out sooner rather than later. Hey, this has been a serious an informative conversation with Bethany Allen today. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. My name is Michael Dunn, and this is the Driving with Dunn podcast. Thank you for listening to Driving with Dunn. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And to reach Michael Dunn, go to zozogo.com.